Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Next Level Needs Assessments. By the end of this six-week program, you'll be able to evaluate the anatomy of an effective needs assessment Recognize the function of needs assessments in the continuing education planning cycle, identify clinical practice gaps, craft actionable learning objectives, and describe anticipated learning outcomes. A course-specific toolkit provides everything you need to create a needs assessment for your portfolio. You'll practice each element of preparing a needs assessment step-by-step and have access to two sessions of one-to-one coaching with me. Personalise written and verbal feedback on your work, as well as structured discussion with your peers. The programme runs April 3rd to May the 12th and spaces are limited. Check the link in the show notes for more information or contact me via email or LinkedIn for details. Christine Welniak An independent medical writer contends that content is king and is central to producing high-quality continuing medical education writing. Learning the art of the pitch in her previous life on Wall Street, Christine discusses why CME and CE medical writers require skills in negotiation and strategy. Christine advises that analytic skills, like the ability to determine the implications and significance of data, are vital to creating top-quality targeted content. We discuss the ubiquitous undervaluing of CME writers in the marketplace and how writers can position themselves in the field and negotiate fair compensation. Join us. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Housen and this is Write Medicine. Christine Welniak is an independent medical writer who specializes in cardiology and diabetes. Before founding Upside Communications in 2005, Christine worked in finance, where she learned the art of the pitch, which is integral to CME grant proposals. She values opportunities to develop content that helps healthcare providers learn about new treatments that could improve patient outcomes. And she says that when the first internet companies began to be traded publicly, the phrase content is king was often repeated on Wall Street. She thinks that phrase should be embraced by CME providers. We're here to talk today about why writers in continuing medical education and continuing education should be skilled in negotiation, pricing and strategy. And how best to develop skills that will ensure you're compensated for the value you bring as a writer to CME and CE content development. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. Good to see you. So please tell listeners who you are. I provided a a little window there, but please tell listeners who you are and about the work that you do. So I am an independent medical writer. 50% of my business is in CME and 
That's focused usually in pharma and drugs. The other 50% on business is all device oriented. And that is most of that work is regulatory, working on submissions either for the European Medicines Agency or for the FDA or some marketing work. So you're kind of interesting and unusual, I suspect, in the sense that you're, you're working across three distinct fields, continuing medical education, regulatory, and marketing. That's a kind of unique skill set. Well, you know, I, one, it's actually great for business reasons. You want to have a diversification of your income stream. Mm-hmm. And also just as opportunities come along, you know, different project types do require different skills and they just keep me interested. You know, you want to use your different skills. If I was just doing needs assessments day in and day out, I would be so bored. So there are different benefits to diversification. Oh, 100%. So how did you, how did you get from Wall Street to CME? Well, so my, well, first, <laughs> talking about the different paths that medical writers take to get to medical writing. I was a Soviet studies major in college, so of course I ended up on Wall Street. <laughs> and that was a <laughs> <Okay>. natural <Tell> us more. <laughs> a natural jump to medical writing. So and actually in thinking about our, our talk today, I was thinking about the things that kind of unify my Soviet studies, Wall Street, and medical writing. And to me, the crux of it is in terms of is actually strategy. Strategy and the ability, because in st- strategy, of course, is a big part of, well, when I was studying, it was the US and the Soviet Union. So there was a lot of strategy involved in that. Wall Street actually is all about strategy too. And strategy comes into play both in CME, well, marketing, of course, but, and also regulatory. It's how are you going to position something? The other thing that kind of threads through my college and my professional experience was it's about aggregating data from various sources, analyzing it, and then writing about it. So that's Mm -hmm. those skill sets first learned in college, they were honed on Wall Street, and I use them every day in medical writing. In terms of the transition from Wall Street to medical writing, I got burned out on Wall Street. There's always so much talk about the huge income. And and that's true. People on Wall Street make a lot of money, but they don't talk about what you give up in terms of your personal life. So a 12-hour day is the norm. Mm-hmm. Working, I worked six days a week, three weeks of the month. One week of the month, I was able to actually take two days off. Sometimes I work seven days a week. Wow. During earnings season, which happens every quarter, you're working 16 to 18 hour days. So it just got to be too much. And I decided that I was going to focus on my personal life. I left and started my own business. And at first it was focused, who did I know? I knew Wall Streeters. And so I, my first clients were supporting Wall Street analysts. And I started working for a medical device analyst. And so with that, yeah. you're doing research on disease states. You're doing research on, you've got to do what's the standard of care? What's the emerging technology for that medical device manufacturers either have right now that are being used for patients when they are no longer responding to drugs? Medical device manufacturers are always 
innovating and coming out with new ways for minimally invasive treatment of different diseases and conditions. So I would go to medical meetings and listen to late breakers and talk to physicians and go to the dinner meetings and then write up all of that for investors. And then I did that from 2005 to 2008 when the financial meltdown happened. And then my Wall Street business went away. And I sat around for maybe nine months hoping the market would come back. And when it didn't, I started Googling and I found this organization called the American Medicals Writers Association, AMWA. And I went to my first AMWA meeting and my goal was just to meet one person, which I did because it's a big meeting. And I had no Mm -hmm. idea there were so many medical communicators and that they had full-time jobs. It was new to me. And from there, I started meeting people and got introductions and got referrals and eventually transitioned my business entirely away from Wall Street. And I'm a medical writer focused in CME and regulatory. So there's so many interesting things to unpack there. One, but there are two key phrases that you've used a number of times. One is strategy and the other is analysis. And I think that often people who come to medical writing and especially maybe CME Maybe they're coming from a scientific background. Maybe they're coming from a clinical background. Maybe they're coming from journalism. Mm -hmm. They are seeing themselves as writers. Mm -hmm. They are not necessarily seeing themselves as people who should or need to think about strategy and analysis. Can you talk a little bit more about, and the other thing you talked about positioning is as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I think how do, so I guess there's a question there about how do writers position themselves? in CME as not only writers? Well, you know, this actually, we're going to take a roundabout way to answering that question because I think we need to talk about the CME landscape first. Let's do it. Most or many, let's say many CME providers want just writers and they undervalue the writer. It's almost that, you know, any writer can do it. And with those types of opportunities, They're not looking for any other skills. They just want a writer. And it's fine to do those. And maybe some people, they just want to do that. That, to me, is just not interesting enough. So I hope for engagements and look for engagements where they can use more of my brain. So that's one thing. I don't know if we want to talk about how writers are viewed and used within CME or if we should just springboard from that. What would you like to do? I think we do want to talk about that. Okay. So. You know, and this is one of the things you know, we put it, you noted it in my introduction, but content is king. And I think many CME providers, they don't embrace that. And to me, that's a problem. You can talk about, oh, we've got this platform and we've got this reach and we can get these learners. If you have a cookie cutter basic activity, I don't think it matters how many learners you can reach if the content isn't high quality. Mm -hmm. And with that, I think that it's, it's more than just writing that you're doing. There is that strategy component. And I think that many senior providers are trying to churn out work rather than focusing on high quality work or of what does the learner really need to learn and what's the best way to convey that. Now, mm-hmm. recently, you're seeing trends in terms of, on the technology side, 
well, we can do some really cool technological things. And that's true. You can do, well, we all know what happened with the Twitter stuff, right? I think that's right. been shelved for a while. <laughs> but animation is also, you know, and having avatars is also very popular mm-hmm. right now. And that's, I mean, cool. And it may be interesting for the learner. But I think that, again, content is king, mm-hmm. not just an animation. And with that, you need to have a writer who understands how all those things come together and also is willing to say to the client, but we can't lose this aspect in the program. You know, the learners really need to know this. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of collaboration that, I mean, I love to do, but you have mm-hmm. to have a CME provider that's willing to do that and who wants to focus on quality and impact. And so there's a couple of things there, I guess, in terms of when you talk about, well, first of all, when you talk about content is king, often education providers are kind of assuming that, you know, faculty are going to provide the content, but often, (laughs) right, okay, that was the right response, but often the content that writers are working with, that faculty provide them with, is not really in sufficient shape to provide the scaffolding or the foundation for that in a way that optimizes learning. Yes. I have yet to work with faculty that meaningfully contribute to the content outside of providing little bullet points for a particular case that should be presented. In my experience, the writer does all of it with the exception of what would be a good case presentation we should include, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then the writer will take that sketch, build it out along with potential treatment options. And that means the writer has got to go and research those because often the faculty doesn't provide those and then come up with a rationale about why this particular treatment over another, and then the faculty will review it. It's rare to have a faculty member actually write those things down themselves. That usually is the writer. And I don't think that CME providers are adequately valuing writers for being able to do that. And I want to ask why that is. But the second part of my question is, you know, you also talked about analysis and writers in order to be able to create content that is king. Writers need to be able to analyze not only the implications and the importance of or the significance of data, but what it is that learners are going to do with this information and what what should they be doing. So they need to have, well, you tell me, what do they need to have then in order to be able to do that analysis? Because that is beyond writing. It is beyond writing. And I can only speak for myself. I'm not quite sure what other writers do in these situations. In terms of we're talking, how do we, they get these skills? Is that the question? Yeah. And, and, what, and what are some of the skills, I guess, that, that you see as being important in that sort of analytic process? Because a lot of writers will have those skills, but they won't necessarily see themselves as having those skills. Okay. So first, in terms of you have to be able to analyze the clinical trial results. So that means reading the manuscripts, looking at the tables. I also, after I have my own thoughts, as I look at the 
the results, which of course you begin with, well, let's look at the base, baseline characteristics. Are the two patient populations well-balanced? Is there anything in there that might skew the results? If there are, then they're usually addressed in the discussion section. Looking at, you know, of course, the efficacy and any safety events. If for people who are new to medical writing and coming from a background of journalism, I highly recommend that they go to some some of AMWA's resources, including going to the national meeting and take some of the, the statistics classes and workshops that are available to learn about how do you interpret statistics. I'm not a statistician, but mm-hmm. how do you interpret them? <laughs> now, so the other thing is that I do is that after I'll read the clinical data, I also like to look for editorials in scientific peer-reviewed journals, because then you might hear who's somebody who is against the particular treatment or the data, what they might point out. And so I like to read those. And part of that is just, you know, in CME, there's supposed to be fair balance. So you need to know that anyway to acknowledge maybe some shortcomings with the drugs or what physicians, healthcare providers should know about what to expect and so they can counsel patients, right? Yeah, I think actually that's something that Twitter you know, has been useful for because you can, you can almost do a kind of sentiment analysis on Twitter because it seems to have been this forum where clinicians are very kind of forthright in what they think about, you know, the release of, you know, new phase two or phase three trial results. And so it was a good place to get that sense of where are the friction points right. in trial data and how people are thinking about it. Because when you're working, especially when you're working on needs assessments, but other kinds of content as well. For particular clients, it's easy to get drawn into the good, successful story right. without also kind of, but you also have to be kind of appreciative of in the pursuit of fair and balanced content. You know, what are the counter arguments yeah. to what's been going on in this in trials? So you have to know that one of the things, and this is coming from, you know, because I started with devices and then learned pharma. And one of the things with devices is always which particular patient population is going to benefit from this device. Mm -hmm. Because for almost all diseases and conditions, you're going to start with pharma and drugs. And when you fail that, then you're considered for a device. So it's which patient population is best suited. And I've actually taken that to me with, with me to pharma and to with CME as you're working on CME. If you're you know, working on an activity that is targeting the primary care setting, well, that's what a primary care healthcare provider wants to know, you know, outside of the clinical trial, which patient should I be considering? Right. And in those patients, what do I need to know? And those two questions are, they're core to so many CME activities and programs. Right. But I know from my own perspective, and I came into CME as a former clinician, it took me a while to figure out, oh yeah, those are the good questions to ask. Where can writers who are kind of new to the field get access to information about what kind of questions should they be asking their clients about the activities they're working on, the data, and the kind of key stakeholders associated with the activity, whether we're talking about clinicians or patients or the supporters? Well, generally, you're going to have a kickoff call with faculty and with the CME provider, hopefully. You know, some 
CME providers like to be the middleman between the writer and faculty. And that actually, I think it makes it harder for the writer because then you can't mm-hmm. ask your questions. Generally, mm-hmm. before a kickoff call, I will ask for, you know, what's the, the content agenda we're trying to cover? And then I do my own prep. I want to be able to ask the faculty questions about either the disease, the diagnosis, the management, whatever it is, the focus of the activity, and get to questions and, and have something like that so I can talk to the faculty. And that's what I do. So I'm doing my own research before the call yeah. based on the content that the CME provider is giving me. And generally, they'll give you their needs assessment that has been submitted to get the funding. And that's usually mm-hmm. a springboard for yeah. starting your own little research. Yeah. So there's a there's an additional layer of research to do there when you're working on, on CME, activ- CME activities themselves. I want to ask, you know, how do you find faculty are in, in answering your questions in ways that are helpful to the work that you're then doing to build the content? Well, you know, it, it always varies by faculty, you know, sure. who that person is. But I found that if you come prepared and have intelligent questions and come humbly, physicians, most physicians are happy to tell you because remember, they've learned through a training process of doing some reading and asking questions of a doctor. Yeah. So that's what their training is. So that's something that they're used to. And I found that 90% of the time, they will respond favorably to that. <laughs> I'd like to understand, use phrase, I'd like to understand, can you, you know, is it important that we pinpoint for learners X, you know, and I just have questions ready. Yeah, those are great questions. And I love that you lead with help me understand, or I'd like to understand. Celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals, CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 12th and Wednesday, October 18th. CME Palooza. It's free, it's fun, and it's just plain fantastic. You've talked about or you touched on the undervalue, the undervaluing that goes on of writers in in CME Mm -hmm. and also technology and the way that that's privileged (laughs) over over content sometimes. Mm -hmm. How does that play into how writers are or should position themselves in the field and ultimately for the sorts of rates that they can request? (laughs) All right. So. For, and we're talking about content development. We're not talking needs assessments and grants, right? I think we can, we can talk about them in two distinct buckets. Yeah, I think they have to be separate because there are different factors that come into play. Mm-hmm. The thing that is the same for both is that project fees that have been, some CME providers set project rates for needs assessment grant proposals for a certain activity type. When I talk about writers being undervalued, those rates haven't changed in 10 years. I know. Cost of, <laughs> cost of living has gone up, yeah. right? Yeah. And those yeah. rates haven't changed in over 10 years. So yes, we're being undervalued for what we're contributing to the CME company's profits. And the way that they can keep those profits is by not compensating writers 
appropriately. So I have a problem with that. But Mm -hmm. I think many of us do. (laughs) But not all CME companies do that. So in general, I'm going to, I first, if I get approached to work with a CME company, I'll find out if they have their own flat rates. And sometimes I will work with a company that has a flat rate if I want to give them a try, if I like the therapeutic area, if I like, you know, kind of what they're saying, I might give them a try. But generally, I want to go and work with CME providers who ask me to give them a proposal for a scope of work. And then I can pitch. So I pitch what my project fee is for the work that's being requested. Mm -hmm. In terms of positioning, I have to say, I'm not quite sure. I mean, first, you need to have experience and confidence, you know, and that is, they may not be one and the same. You could have a lot of experience and not have confidence. Yes. You could have. The converse is true. (laughs) Yes, that is also true. So I'm actually not quite sure how to answer that, how they position themselves. Well, I think, so I'll, I'll just kind of share what I'm thinking there. I think one of the things that, that struck me more and, you know, the longer I stayed in, in this field, mm-hmm. the more I realized that often when you're working with clients, particularly on the content side of things, and it, and it can take a while to get from the needs assessment side of things into the content side of things. It can take a while. Once you're there, Clients start to ask you to help them with all sorts of things. Yes. Beyond, let's just call it writing. Yes. And so that's an opportunity to start thinking of yourself as a particular kind of partner who helps with X. That's right. And as you're able to articulate that, then you are getting out of the writer. As a commodity. Yeah, as a commodity, the writer as undervalued, the yeah. writer as somebody, you know, I think one of our colleagues has shared a couple of times, writers are seen as, well, anyone can write. So not true, but right. There is that idea. Let's assure the audience yeah. listening that that is absolutely not the case. And I've lost count of the number of times that clients have said to me, it's so hard to get good writers. And good writers are good not only because they write, but because they're able to do something else, even if they are not necessarily explicitly positioning themselves in that way, they are doing something else, is is my theory. I don't know. Oh, I think I think you're right. I don't and you know, I don't position myself as being, you know, a strategist, but strategy is part of everything that I do. Yeah. Because you have to think about it. Yes. But I don't position myself that way. But you're right. Writers who've had long careers who get better than industry average rates, they bring something else to the table besides writing. Mm -hmm. For me, strategy, it's it's analysis too. You know, it's and for me it is comfort level with talking with faculty members. And that's huge because a lot of people end up feeling or being deferential in a way that doesn't serve the project. That's right. You've got to be, you know, respect the faculty, but you need to be able to have them respect you. Exactly. You got to come prepared. You got to ask intelligent questions. That's part of it. And faculty are just people. Yes. They're just people. Yeah. You talked a little bit about you want to work with clients who come with, you know, they want you to, they want to talk about scope of work and they 
anticipate a rate that is commensurate with the scope of work that is being described or discussed. So how do you typically approach conversations about project scope? Because again, it's one of these areas where so much easier if the client just says, here's our budget. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that that is the easier way, but you know, I like to know what I'm getting into. I don't like surprises. I don't think most people don't like surprises, particularly when it comes to money, because it's rare that it's a positive surprise, right? So, <laughs> right. Which means sitting down, doing some thought, asking questions. You know, CME providers also, you know, will often say, oh, it's a, you know, a 3,000 word article in this field. Okay. Let's start with, you know, what are the learning objectives? Am I expected? Am I creating tables? Am I getting graphics? Will you have a graphic designer? What is the faculty contributing? Or what are your expectations for the faculty contributing? How many rounds of iterations do you expect? Is there, it can go on depending on if it's a video presentation and with a PowerPoint versus a text based article versus case presentation. You know, you're doing different cases. How many cases? how many questions per case will be embedded into it. And all of that is you use that to create a project fee based on, you know, what your hourly rate is and how many hours you estimate the project will take. And once you come up with that, your hourly of how many hours you think it's going to take, add some time to it because there's going to be email communication with the client that they may give you a, week or two weeks to create it. And maybe it sits on their plate for three weeks to four weeks. And they're going to come back to you with changes they want right away. But of course, in four more weeks, my mind is on the project I'm currently working on. I've completely forgotten about the project I worked on a month ago. So you've got to get your mind right. back into it. And so that actually takes some time. So you have to add a few more hours to whatever your estimate is and pitch it to the client. And usually that becomes a process of discussion. <laughs> with the client right? because, you know, the client is, well, CME providers who are asking you for a quote aren't necessarily focused on paying the lowest rate, but they probably want to understand your assumptions. When I send them a quote, I outline everything that is embedded in that proposal mm -hmm. so that they can see in terms of the hours that I spend, that I anticipate that I need to spend in terms of doing my own lit search, reading articles, drafting, doing writing the draft, creating tables, looking for graphics. Sometimes you have to find out, do they want to get permissions from journals? And is that your responsibility or is it their responsibility? That will find, it can, it can take, if you really want to find the, I mean, be thoughtful about providing the best activity. If you are going to be creating your own graphic or just even the idea for the graphic, because I'm not a graphic designer, that takes time. Yes, it does. To think about how to provide in, you know, relevant information. So all mm -hmm. of that will go into, and then after that, you know, I'll talk with the client and there may be back and forth. You know, in terms of negotiation, and this comes from, I think, from the 80s and the 90s, where, you know, this idea that ask for more than you want. And then you negotiate it down. I don't do that. That's not the way I am. I don't, to me, this isn't a game. This is my livelihood. I like to be upfront, direct, honest with the, 
the CME provider, CME providers will tell you, oh, we've got all the literature you need. Never true. Ever. It's never ne- true. <laughs> never, ever, ever true. So even if a client tells me that they've got all the literature, I build time into my project scope for research and finding relevant material that needs to go into the document. And then talk about it one by one. Actually, the important parts, the whole 80s, 90s thing, go high and let them negotiate you. I think that's so wrong. What I think is the best way for any negotiation is to listen. Tell them what, you know, you can give them your project estimate and what's behind it, all the little layers. And then if they have a problem with the number, ask them what's bothering them or ask them what their concern is and then listen. And then Mm -hmm. maybe they'll come back to you with a number that is, you know, much lower than you anticipate. And then you tell them why that gives you concern. And then maybe you meet in the middle somewhere and you try it. And particularly if this is a new client, there's a bit of trial and error to see if it works. But first you have to develop trust and to develop a relationship. So that's why it's be honest, be direct and listen. Mm -hmm. That's what I do. And that's what I'm comfortable with. Now, I know a lot of writers and actually people aren't comfortable talking about money. But oh, 100%. Yeah. What you, I mean, this is actually the good thing for the Wall Street days. You get comfortable talking about money. You're talking about money all the time. Yeah. And you're talking about your own compensation. You know, the big like getting up to bonuses and you're going in for your bonus number and you know that you're, it's going to be lower than you want and you're going to try your boss to make it higher. And that happens every year. You get comfortable talking about money. What I can sell for your listeners who aren't comfortable is one, you can practice. And get your thoughts together and get your arguments and practice. You know, the first few times your voice may quiver, that's okay. It's not the end of the world. But the more that you talk about the money, you have these money conversations, the easier it's going to become. This is your livelihood. So you need Mm -hmm. to talk about it, right? And to be honest about it, there are only a few things in terms of money. I might be willing to accept lower money than I had anticipated for a variety of reasons. You know, again, maybe I really love the program that they're putting together, or maybe I want to work with the faculty, or maybe the CME provider has a cool, interesting way of doing an activity that I want to try out, or I want to develop a new skill. Some things where I'm non-negotiable is I am non-negotiable on payment timeline. My payment timeline is net 30. And I actually bring that up in our conversations, let them know this is very important to me. I'm a sole sole proprietor. I am a single income. Net 30, this is important. So I need to know if if you can't do that, then I can't work with you because I'm not willing to go beyond. That's for me. Everyone's got a different situation and they just need to know. So if something's really important to you in terms of money or the project or communication or whatnot, talk to your, your prospect, your client about it. And so self-awareness is key there because you can't do any of that. You can't do any of that unless you are aware, you know what your business and personal values are and how they align with the work that you're doing and that you want to to do. You can't do that if you aren't clear about what your economic bottom line is and what kind of income you need to generate in order, you know, from each project in order to hit all your financial goals. Yeah. And you can't do that unless you learn language that makes it okay for you to have that money conversation. 
And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that you talked about was having that net 30 conversation up front. Mm-hmm. And that's your, that's your non-negotiable. Yeah. Because one of the things I noticed over the last few years is how many clients very subtly and quietly shifted from net 30 to net 45. No heads up about it. Mm-hmm. No. And of course, there's a separation between the person you're working with and the financial mm. you know, department or whoever kind of works with the money. And so often you're having that conversation with the person who's your client, but they're not necessarily in a position to do very much about it. So I think it's interesting to think about what your non-negotiables are and have those conversations up front with clients before you you kind of sign on the on the dotted line and i love that i love that energy and confidence that you that you bring not only for yourself but people are going to hear that and get excited about it because it's absolutely possible to learn it is possible to learn and that's one of the things that i would love to if i were to one day do a foundation it would be to set up to help people get comfortable talking empowering them to talk about money comfortably it's it's not I know for a lot of people it's a really scary thing it can be a t- taboo topic it shouldn't be. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that most people are working because they'd love to work. No, you're working no. because <laughs> you need to earn an income. <laughs> yeah. Can we go back to the yeah. other part? We need to talk about needs assessments because for the questions oh, yes. to ask for needs <laughs> assessments. Now, because I know a lot of people they get started on needs assessment before it can go over to content. So again, most providers have flat rates and they haven't been updated mm-hmm. in over 10 years. And that's no, exactly, a little bit exactly. maddening. Well, it's shocking. It is shocking. And it's just wrong. I mean, I understand that it's a business ex- uh, development expense for CME providers. So they're taking a risk by putting out this. And as Don Hartning's survey, it's what, 1500 is the average, right? For but this could be part of their strategy too. That oh yeah. For every grant they get, they know they have to kind of keep a portion of that for business development. Yeah. So they do. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, and so in the terms of for if you're going, if you come across a, you know, and it's some CME providers will ask you to do a quote. Often I find it comes from either medical societies or healthcare systems, CME departments within healthcare systems will ask you to provide a quote for a needs assessment. So the first thing to, to actually distinguish is, is it just a needs assessment or is it the whole grant? Because if you're doing uh, the whole yes. grant, I mean, in, we'll talk about needs assessments, but generally what we mean is the whole grant. Mm-hmm. But that's one thing you've got to get out up front. The second thing that I find out, is it just one disease state or is it more than one disease state? You'll find some CME providers, including medical societies and healthcare systems, they want to have six different disease states in a grant proposal. Well, <laughs> that that's more work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So how many disease states, how many gaps? You price it by how many gaps? Is it two gaps? Is it three gaps? God forbid it's six gaps, but... <laughs> <laughs> We've all worked on those. But yes, we have. And then also... If they have a a word count that they want to have in a needs assessment, and for people who are new to the field, if you're asked to do, you know, like a six thousand word needs assessment, nobody needs yeah. a six thousand word needs assessment. You know, the needs assessment is to you identify the gap, and 
you provide support for the gap. It's not a data dump of clinical trial data, which gets you to 6,000 words or 4,000 words. That doesn't show a gap in knowledge or competence. Mm -hmm. If you are not doing a needs assessment looking for evidence to support gaps in knowledge or competence, I, I don't know all the rest in the needs assessment. Most of it is extraneous, in my opinion. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's that's what I had to say on project pricing for NAIDs and uh, grants. No, I think that's really important. And I think it is surprising. And I do hear from people who are you know, relatively new to the field. They've done some needs assessments, but they are they do get asked to do these humongous mm-hmm. documents for, well, for a pittance, really. Mm-hmm. But first of all, nobody wants to read 6,000 words. No, no. <laughs> That that is not helpful to anyone. And to your second point, yeah, that the chances are those six thousand words are going to be a data dump versus a very lean, agile, precisely targeted explanation of what's currently going on, what best practice is, what the gap is between those two things, yeah. and what what's the specific activity that is going to help close that. Gap. And what do we expect learners to be able to do that's right. after the the activity that's, you know, new and demonstrates learning? And what is the effect on patient outcomes? Exactly. What, what, why do you think, uh, I guess I have a theory here too, but I, I'm curious, why do you think some providers still lean into that longer, unruly clinical data dump form of needs assessment? Because we still see them. All the time. I mean, it's very few providers, and these are what I think of as the higher quality CME providers who are looking to, where content is king, Mm -hmm. who are Mm -hmm. focused on having a true needs assessment versus a data dump. I think it's, I mean, my theory it's the focus of let's get a lot of grant proposals out there. We'll throw 10 a provider. Maybe they'll accept one. And we'll just get all this information or sometimes strategy on their end. Ask mm-hmm. the writer to do a 6,000 word needs assessment that then they cut up and put into different grants. So maybe they're paying the writer for one grant and needs assessment, but they're using that information for three to four to five different grants. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's my yeah, theory. That happens. that happens too. I do wonder how much of that also has to do with, you know, you do see people, especially on the startup end of things, mm-hmm. you do see people getting into a role where they are directing the needs assessment, but they they don't really have a kind of full understanding of what clinical practices, what clinical data are, what their significance is. And what education really needs to be doing. You're right, Alex. That's very common. When I've done calls in terms of working on needs assessments, and I'll ask, is there a particular you know, clinical trial that I should pull up? They might know one, but they've looked it up for the sponsor's drug, but they don't know mm-hmm. anything else about yeah, the yeah. other treatments in that are available. Sometimes, and again, this is like, really content mills in terms of just churning out work. I don't know if fair and balanced, I don't know if it's just lip service. Interesting. Don't know. I think that's a topic for another 
episode because I think it's uh, you know I, I think it's an important topic and actually Graham McMahon from ACCME is going to be on the on the podcast and one of the things that ACCME are absolutely kind of rock solid about is integrity yeah you know and I think as I know you'll agree with me Christine as writers we are the firewall yeah we are bricks in the firewall and so our investment in integrity and in making sure that what we're creating, whether it's on the needs assessment side or on the content side, is fair and balanced yeah. is is hugely important. Integrity is part of for medical writing. If you're gonna be working in CME, if you're gonna be working in regulatory, if you're gonna be working in manuscripts that go through peer review, mm-hmm. integrity is important for all of those. One hundred percent. I I want to keep talking forever, <laughs> but I'm gonna call it. <laughs> all right. Christine Welniak, mistress of the pitch, <laughs> advocate for content is king. Thank yes. you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with Right Measures and listeners. Thank you so much. It's been great. If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.